You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. If I didn't introduce myself, my name is Chip, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Grab your Bible. Let's look at Nehemiah 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to continue considering uh, this morning the second half of an answer to a question that we posed last week. And the question was, um, how should the people of God respond to, uh, to opposition when it arises to the work of God? And last week, we talked about how we do that collectively as the people of God. This week, we're going to zoom in and see how you can do it individually as a leader. And so we want to, um, to make it a little more personal, perhaps, maybe uh, this week. And we're going to focus in on this biblical truth that's in your notes, that godly leaders rise above opposition. Rise above opposition. Last week, we said that the people of God should expect opposition. And we talked a little bit about where it comes from and how to respond to it. But this week, we want to see through the example of Nehemiah how it is that godly leaders can rise above opposition when it comes. And so uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week at Nehemiah 5.14. You can follow along as I read. Nehemiah 5.14. Moreover, from that time... That I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox a six and six choice sheep, that's hard to say, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. I'm going to stop there for now, and I want to show you eight ways from this text and the one that follows that godly leaders rise above opposition. We're going to move fairly quickly. The first way that we see that godly leaders rise above opposition is they deny themselves. They deny themselves. In Nehemiah, verse 14, he says that neither he nor, he calls them his brothers, just kind of his uh, inner circle of guys, if you will, they ate, they did not eat the food allowance of the governor. Now, he's the governor. So he's not talking about, I didn't go to the governor and take a handout. He's saying that as the governor, he had the right under the law of the Persian king Artaxerxes to demand a tax of sorts from the people that could support himself and his administration. 
And so that could be a tax of money or of actual food or of wine, but the people paid to support the governor and his staff, but he doesn't take it. In fact, if you remember back from last week, he's actually canceling out debts of people and he is spending his own money to buy people back out of uh, a kind of indentured servitude because of their debts. Godly leaders deny themselves. They don't use the people or their position to enrich themselves or to pad their own lives with comfort or pleasure or ease of living. There's two reasons I think it's important that you remember that if or when you're called to lead in a season of or called to lead in a setting where opposition to the work arises. First one is just practical. That because when opposition arises, people are going to lash out at you and you need to have clean hands. People might have disagreed with Nehemiah's decisions. They might have been altogether opposed to the work that he was doing. But what they could not do was point a finger at Nehemiah and say, he's in it for him. He's doing it to enrich himself. His hands were clean so he could focus on the issues when they arose, not allowing personal attacks to come to him. It's an important thing for godly leaders to remember. But second, and more importantly than having clean hands, is this is how Jesus led. So if you're going to be a godly leader, we want to lead not like Nehemiah, but like Jesus. And, and this is the way that Jesus led. No one in the history of the world ever denied themselves more than Jesus of Nazareth, who Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, he says, Jesus was in the form of God and yet did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you are someone to whom God has given some level of leadership influence in whatever sphere it might be, we don't get to act like Jesus at church on Sunday mornings and then live like the world all through the week when we're at work. And so being a follower of Jesus means leading like Jesus and godly leaders deny themselves. And we see that here in the life of Nehemiah. Second, Godly leaders rise above opposition because they fear God. They fear God. Nehemiah is explicit about this in verse 15. He says, The governors that came before me did these things to the people, but I didn't because of the fear of God. Fear of God, if that's a, an idea or a word that maybe you're not super familiar with. Fear of God biblically kind of has two sides to the same coin. One aspect of it is kind of an intellectual understanding of the sovereignty and the power and the righteousness of God and understanding that, that he alone grants eternal life or eternal death to all people across all time and all cultures. But it's also an emotional response to those truths that propels you into a worship of and an obedience to and a relationship with God that is it's driven by an understanding of who he is and an affection for him. 
So fear has with it bound up some very real, what, you, what we might consider literal fear, um, and, and rightly so to the creator of the universe, but also this kind of holy reverential awe that actually causes us to pull in closer. Fear of God is found at the intersection of the heart and the mind, and it, it forms this foundation of godly leadership that's born out of a healthy, biblical, gospel-centered view of who God is and who his son is. Practically speaking for you as a leader, here's what fearing God does for you. It will remind you that the situation you're in, the opposition you face, the challenge that you find yourself up against, the burden of leadership that you feel in the moment is not the greatest reality. The greatest reality is God himself. It puts those other things into perspective. If a fear of God is what propels you, is what stabilizes you, it will cause other things in your life to become smaller as he becomes bigger. I think it's something of what the Apostle Paul is after in Romans 8 when he writes, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. God is the greatest reality in Paul's life. And he's saying, who's going to oppose us? Well, Clearly, people opposed Paul in his ministry and the church. That's why he's writing. He's writing to Christians who were in Rome under active persecution. But those things began to shrink back because they weren't the greatest reality. The greatest reality was Christ Jesus who had died. No, more than that, who had been raised, who was at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. Godly leaders can rise above opposition because they see the bigger picture. They have an eternal perspective that allows them to lead and to act and to think and to feel differently in the middle of the opposition because they fear God. Third way. The godly leaders rise above opposition is that they lead by example. They lead by example. Did you catch in verse 16? Or if you still have your Bible open, do you see in verse 16? Nehemiah says, I also persevered in the work on the wall. I also moved rocks laid bolts and bars and gates. I also worked on the wall. This is what godly leaders do. Godly leaders are in it. They're in the battle. They are out on the manufacturing floor. They can get up on the tractor and work the field. They know how to do, and they're willing to do the things that they equip and train and encourage and even sometimes demand that other people do. They're in it. And for the Christian leader, we have to understand that all that is is a working out of the gospel in our lives because the gospel is incarnational. The gospel 
is incarnate. It's in the flesh. God is not removed from his creation. He demands obedience. Jesus persevered in perfect obedience, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He calls his people to a life of service. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. God requires sacrifice for sin. Jesus laid down his life once for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. So when you hear us talking about living on mission in your spheres of influence, this is part of that. It's leading by example because the gospel shapes our lives. It causes us to be conformed into the image of Christ in every aspect of our lives, including, including the ways that we lead, whether that's in the classroom or in the home or in the workplace or in your neighborhood, in your family. Like leading by example is incarnational leadership that is just a working out of the gospel. And if you're going to lead in a godly way, you have to lead by example. That's what Jesus did. That's all that Nehemiah is doing here. Fourth, I told you we're going to move fast. Godly leaders rise above opposition. They sacrifice for others. They're willing to sacrifice for others. Verses 17 and 18. Nehemiah reports that there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the other nations that were around us. And if you recall from last week, there were people from at least eight other towns who came into Jerusalem to help on the work, crews from these other towns that came in. And the way that Ron has taken a crew of people down to central Florida this week to help with the work of rebuilding, there were people who came from other towns to help. And what Nehemiah did is he feeds them food and wine every day, despite the fact that he's not taking that tax that he has the right to take. He's providing the oxen and the sheep and the sides and the wine and you know, whatever else it is that's on the table. That's coming out of his own stores, his own assets. He's doing it personally. Now, sure, he has assets that other people don't have. King Artaxerxes of Persia made sure that that was the case. But he's willing to use those assets. He's willing to sacrifice those assets for the sake of the mission of God and of the people of God. It would have been really easy for him to say, this is my money. This is my livestock. This is my wine. I'm, why should I give this to you, I earned this. You know how long I had to serve as a cupbearer of the king? You know how dangerous that is? That if I looked sad in front of the king, he could kill me? No, no, no. I've worked my whole life to get to this place. This is mine. He could have easily said, why would I give you a handout? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Why don't you? You have the same opportunity. Do you, like, one day I'd like to retire I can't just be given out all day. I can't feed 150 people a day for 52 days while we rebuild this wall. I have to make sure that my family and I are taken care of. This may be the only season of abundance I have. I can't just give all this away. I have to be practical about this. Everybody needs to chip in. But that's not what he did. He sacrificed 
for others because that's what godly leaders do. You see how this points to, not to Nehemiah, but to Christ? It, it does not just leap into the front, forefront of your thought. Like, this is what Christ did as he sacrificed for others. That's what godly leaders do when moms decide to put their professional ambitions on hold for the sake of their children. That is Christ-like sacrifice for others. When retirees give of their time to serve the community, that is Christ-like sacrifice for others. When families regularly and generously give to the church, that is a Christ-like sacrifice for others. When you volunteer, if you're a man who volunteers to serve fatherless boys in truth and nature, that is a Christ-like sacrifice for others. You pick the setting. Home, office, neighborhood, family. One of the ways that godly leaders rise above opposition when it comes. They keep moving forward. One of the ways they keep pursuing the mission, they keep achieving goals, is that they sacrifice for other people. Fifth, godly leaders rise above opposition because they trust the Lord. They trust the Lord. Verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. In the end, Nehemiah trusts the Lord. Now, it's an act of trust. He's working hard. He's leading well. He's being flexible. He's being prudent. We talked about this last week. He makes adjustments to his plan along the way to, to respond to threats that arise. He, he is, he's, he's active. He is doing every single thing he can do. He is controlling everything that he can control, and he trusts the Lord. There will be times in your life when you will have to do the right thing for the right reasons, with absolutely no idea whatsoever whether or not it'll work and whether or not you'll come out the other side unscathed. You will have to come to a place where you make a decision or you take an action that causes you to lay down your anxiety and your fear and the infinite scenarios of what could go wrong or how things might backfire. You have to lay those things down at the foot of the cross and simply say, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done. And just trust the Lord. So what if it doesn't work? I trust the Lord. Well, what if I get fired? I trust the Lord. What if they don't understand? I trust the Lord. Well, what if he leaves me? I trust the Lord. What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? I trust the Lord. Remember me, oh my God. 
I give it to you. Godly leaders can rise above and lead through seasons and settings of opposition because they trust the Lord. Not that they don't stop working hard. Not that they don't stop planning prudently. Not not that they don't, like, yes and amen and my hands are open. I trust the Lord. If you're not a Christian yet, or maybe if you've been away from church for a really long time, I think it's important that you understand that God does not ask people to obey abstract concepts that can never be achieved. God is not removed from his creation or from his people. He has given us in his word concrete examples of ordinary people in real life just faithfully living out their call in their vocational settings. And there are thousands and thousands of examples of this throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of uh, of this church. We could talk to people and say, give me an example of the way that this worked out in real life. Steve mentioned community groups when he was up here earlier. That's one of the ways that we're encouraged in this together as a faith family. Is when you sit around with other people, not in rows, but in circles, you start to get to hear other people's stories in a way that encourages your heart. And that's what Nehemiah gives us. He is not some unique Superman leader. He's just a gospel-shaped, faith-fueled, ordinary believer who's leading like Jesus in his vocational calling. Let me show you three more ways. I'm going to jump to chapter 6. Not jump to, just keep going through. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Starting with number 6 in your sermon notes, which says that godly leaders remain focused. Remain focused. Look at Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakamphirim in the plain of Ono. But, they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Here's what's going to happen to you at some point. If you lead with any ability at all, there's going to come a point where you get some things done, you have some success, you overcome some obstacles, you overcome some opposition, and then people are going to send to you and ask you to come do some other stuff. They're going to say, hey, you did pretty good at that. Why don't you come over here and do this now? Or why don't you add this to what you're doing? This happened to me recently. I had some people approach me um, to run for a local office. And they said, hey, we think you're uh, the right type of person to do this. Well, we've got the money to bankroll the campaign. We've got somebody who will manage all that for you. Um, well, why don't you consider throwing your name in the hat here? And so I talked to Kristen. I called some people I respect and just said, hey, like, what do you think about this? Can you help me discern this? And as we prayed through that, finally I got to a place where I said, you know, like, that's not my call. 
I got another bunch of people that can go do that. My call is to stay focused on King's cross. That's what God has called me to do. And sometimes opposition is just going to look like a really shiny, gleamy, ego-stroking opportunity that's nothing but a distraction. And it's going to take your focus away from the thing that God has called you to do in this place and in this season that he has you in right now. And godly leaders are able to discern those things and remain focused. So no, no, I'm doing a good work. I'm not coming down from this work to go do that work because God's called me here. And I'm focused on this. And it may be your family. It may be something that you're doing vocationally in your workplace. This is what godly leaders are able to do. They stay focused on what it is that God's called them to do in the season they're in, in the place that they are right now. Seventh is related to that. The godly leaders block out the noise. They block out the noise. So Nehemiah remains focused on the work God's called him to. And what happens is his opponent's tactics shift. And so instead of them saying, hey, um, why don't you come over here and do this? Now they pivot. Watch this in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Now that's treason to the Persian king Artaxerxes, which would have led to a death penalty for Nehemiah. Verse 7. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. Setting up a false prophet to prophesy about you is a death penalty under the laws of God in Jerusalem. So now he's got this double pivoted attack, right? You're, you're committing treason against the Persian king. You're committing blasphemy against God by setting up false prophets. Verse 8. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Halfway through verse 7. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you said has been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. It's just noise. They're lobbing accusations at him, trying to make him afraid, he says, because fearful people aren't productive. Scared people aren't productive. And so they're trying to undermine him and make him afraid. And they're just lobbing all of this noise at Nehemiah. Or people are saying this, or people are saying that. Well, here's these accusations. Why don't you come down here and defend yourself? And it's just noise. Noise comes from all over. Does it not? Social media noise. Office gossip noise. Drama in your friend group noise. Conflict in your extended family noise. Objections 
to your proposal from that one guy in the office, and every office has that one guy who immediately sees why nothing will work. And it's just, well, that's not going to work. It just, he immediately, he's just a roadblock guy in your office. It's just noise all the time. It's the same exact thing that they did to Jesus. Hey, hey, we need you to take a stand on Roman tax policy noise. Hey, why don't we have this theological debate about the nature of the Sabbath noise? What if we lob out these random theological hypotheticals about divorce noise? Why don't we have some semantic arguments over what do you mean when you say the word king noise? But Jesus is laser focused on what his father had sent him to do to redeem and to reconcile a lost and dying world by living and dying in our place for our sins. And he was not going to be deterred from that. And so he had to block out the noise of that. And sometimes in order for you to remain focused on what God's called you to do, you have to rise above and lead through opposition by remaining focused and blocking out the noise that people are lobbing your way every single day. One more. Godly leaders discern truth. They discern truth. To block out noise, you have to be able to discern truth. Fair? Like if you're a sonar man on a U.S. Navy sub and you're listening if they even still do that, I'm old. Maybe now there's some different technology. You got to be able to know the difference between the noise a whale pod makes and the noise a Russian submarine makes. You got to discern what is it that I hear? What is true? If you're going to lead well in your home, in your friend group at work, you have to be able to discern truth. Look at verses 10 to 14. Verses 10 to 14. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. If he has on-demand access to the temple, almost certainly Shemaiah is a priest. Because they're the only ones who could have said, come with me, let's go to the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. And they're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? He's referring there to his character. I'm not the type of man that runs. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? He's referring there to his status as a lay person. He wasn't ceremonially authorized to go into the temple. So if he had gone into the temple, he would have been, he would have had a death sentence hanging over his head. Verse 12, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me, which is exactly what they accused Nehemiah of doing back in verse 7, of hiring a false prophet to further his own cause. 
Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So Nehemiah goes to the house of the priest to get counsel. Only the counsel that he gets is false. It's potentially deadly, and it is certainly ungodly. So he was in a place where he had to discern truth. And there will be times in your life when you have to be prayerfully wise enough to know what is true and what is not true. And you won't always get it right. That's okay. That's why God's given you prayer. That's why he's given you wise counsel. That's why he has given you, if you are a Christian, the spirit of truth living inside you to guide you into all truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. So if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of truth in you to help you to discern in the moment what is true and what is not true. And in seasons of high challenge or of opposition, one of the ways that godly leaders rise above that and lead through it is they discern that truth. If you're not yet a Christian, the first truth that we pray you will discern is not how to be a great leader. That is not what we hope that you take away from this morning. The first truth we want you to discern is the truth of who Jesus is and what it is that he has done in living a perfect life and dying as your substitute in your place. We want you to come to a place where you believe that and then live your life in response to that truth and be shaped by that truth in every aspect of your life, including the ways that you lead in the places where you live, learn, work, and play. Let's pray. Father, it's our it's our prayer as believers for those of us who are that you would help us to lead well. We know that a path of leadership for the Christian looks like service. So would you help us to serve well? Being willing to sacrifice for others and to, to lead by example, to deny ourselves where necessary, to trust in you. Would you help us collectively to be the type of church that leads and serves its community well? That there would be a place where truth is proclaimed where we work really hard at the things you've called us to, but in the end, we trust you. Would you increase our faith for the sake of your name? For those in the room who may not yet know you, pray that you would, would help them to see you maybe for the first time this morning, to open their hands and their hearts and to turn from their sin and turn towards you in faith. That the name of Christ might be amplified all the more in their salvation. In Christ's name, amen.
for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.